Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. There is a ton going on in politics this week. Joe Biden is in Scotland at COP26, the big global summit on climate change. Back home, his domestic agenda still hanging by a thread in Congress, dealt a body blow by Joe Manchin, who basically said, guys, I am not going to do what you want me to do, and it's going to be a fucking problem. And then, all eyes focused on the bellwether off-year governor's race in the state of Virginia. Former governor, Democrat Terry McAuliffe against political newcomer and Donald Trump tightrope walker, Glenn Youngkin. The results of that race going to be interpreted, maybe underinterpreted, but more likely overinterpreted, seen by a lot of people as foretelling the future of the fate of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and the 2022 midterms and beyond, also seen as a reflection of just how weak or how strong Joe Biden really is as his poll numbers continue their downward slide. He's down at 41% approval rating, 71% of the country saying the country's on the wrong track, and four in 10, four in 10 Democrats and Democratic-leading independents in this new Maris poll saying that they are ready to be done with Joe Biden. That's Democrats and Democratic League independents. 44% say they don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee of the Democratic Party in 2024. I will say I have never seen a poll question like that nine months into a new president's first term in office, let alone that level of dissent, defection, dissatisfaction on the part of Democratic partisans with their sitting president and leader of their party. So it's kind of a fucked up time and one that requires a certain amount of interpretation. And in these moments, I find myself always looking for wisdom from guys who have been there and done that and seen it all and can give a high level and in the weeds view of what all of this stuff means about the state of American politics, the state of the Democratic Party at a time when we are in massive flux and facing a ton of upheaval. I also look for wit and humor and big helpings of profanity and even sometimes the willingness to cuss me out when I get something wrong, though of course I rarely do. And you know, there's no more invaluable dynamic duo that fit all of those prerequisites better than our guest today. The legendary, the loquacious, and the often highly liquored up James Carville and Paul Begala. The state of the Democratic Party is white. <laughs> now say why. James, you got to say why. You got to say the Democratic Party is worried because blah, 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 blah. Virginia and the package. <laughs> the two of them. Okay, that's about the best I'm going to get out of him. Paul, I want you to say I'm Paul Begala in the state of the Republican Party is, and then try to do a thing that's like incoherent English. <laughs> I'm Paul Begala, and the state of the Republican Party is past tense. It no longer exists. It's a death cult of personality focused on Donald Trump and white supremacy. Okay, see, that's that's what I call a cold open. <laughs> People used to say that James was more of a performer in this crew, but as he's gotten older and drunker... <laughs> Paul has stepped into the void and because well, he gets the I get the hard one. He gets the easy. Yeah, one. yeah. Okay. exactly. I mean, we're complicated. They're crazy. 
If you give even the slightest shit about American politics and elections and campaigns, you already know who James and Paul are, Carville and Begala, two epic, sainted names in our political lives over the last 20, 30 years. So I'm not even going to waste any of your time with rote biographical information. You have already known about Carvel and Begala since at least 1992, when together they formed the strategic and tactical nucleus of Bill Clinton's presidential campaign that year and the beating heart of that fabled place known forever now as the War Room, which, of course, also is the title of a famous D.B. Pettibaker and Chris Hedges documentary that turned James and Paul from standard issue political consultants, operatives, hacks into living legends and very, very rich men. What you probably don't know is that the two of them first met a full decade before the Clinton campaign back in 1983 down in Texas, working on a failed gubernatorial campaign of a guy named Lloyd Doggett. And after that, six years later, after working on a whole bunch of races together, they decided to team up officially and formally and started a consulting firm called Carville and Begala, at which point they did two races that vaulted them to prominence. The first of those, Zell Miller's victorious 1990 gubernatorial race in Georgia, and then the improbable run of Harris Wofford in a Pennsylvania Senate special election in 1991 that augured much about what would unfold in 1992. Those two races were the things that made Carvel and Begala stars in their profession, and they also provided the entree that was required to get into Bill Clinton's orbit when Zell Miller called his friend, Governor Clinton in Arkansas, and said, you know, James and Paul, they're pretty good. You should hire those guys. And, you know, Bill Clinton did. And the rest is history. The two of them have been essential and brilliant and often prophetic voices about the state of their party ever since. They have also been, for better or worse, inescapable voices, pervasive voices. Neither of them has given us a moment's respite from their incessant babbling over the last 20 or so years. They've done together and separately an infinite number of cable news appearances. They've written or had ghostwritten an uncountable number of books that have sold an insane number of copies. And God knows how many ridiculously expensive, lucrative lecture circuit appearances these two guys have done. But here's the thing. The reason that James and Paul haven't shut up for the better part of the last 20 years is that we don't want them to. Quite the contrary. Everyone with half a brain about politics knows how goddamn smart they are and how you'd have to be crazy not to pay attention to what they have to say about the things they know about and how much fun it always is to have a listen to them at their peak, in their prime, in full flourish, even when, in James's case, he's screaming at the top of his lungs, as he did through a lot of our interview at me. He screamed so much at us that we had to stop it in the middle at one point just to adjust his level so we wouldn't destroy all of our audio equipment. And, you know, that's the price of getting to spend some time with James Carville. He is very Carvillian in this conversation for Hell and High Water. Uh, this conversation took place last Friday, which was the day after the Democrats missed another self-imposed deadline to pass Biden's twin legislative priorities into law, that $1 trillion hard infrastructure bill and the even larger social spending bill known as Build Back Better. I felt then that this failure, this missing of a deadline, was an ominous sign of things to come. James and Paul were less pessimistic than I was, but the overall picture that both of them painted 
about where our politics stand right now and where we're headed was clear-eyed and daunting, to put it mildly. Looking into the future, what James and Paul see is maybe not an oncoming train that's going to kill us all. But there's no doubt that what they see on the horizon is a heaping, flaming shit ton of hell and high water. Today, uh, I'm pleased to announce that after, after months of tough and thoughtful negotiations, I think we have an historic, I know we have a historic economic framework. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. I've long said compromise and consensus are the only way to get big things done in a democracy. Important things done for the country. I know it's hard. I know how deeply people feel about the things that they fight for. But this framework includes historic investments in our nation and in our people. So there was Joe Biden singing the song of compromise and cooperation. We have two of the most compromised people I've ever met here uh, <laughs> on, on Hell and High Water, James Carville and, and Paul Begala. Guys, good to see you. Hey, John. Great to see you. Um, Joe Biden gets on the chopper, then leaves the country, goes to see the Pope, talking about cooperation. We have a deal. It's all great. I'm leaving. And then nothing happens again. Second time in a month that he's gone up to Capitol Hill on hands and knees with like bouquets of flowers, begging people to vote for his infrastructure bill. And now they got nothing again. So I ask you to just at the start, James, you can go first. What the fuck is going on with the Democratic Party? They have all the votes. They can do this on their own. They got 50 Senate votes and they got like a three or four House majority. Yeah. So let's just interject a little reality here. Okay. And I I know they got a guy that fell apart. They're going to get it. You know, you're talking about probably the most historic change in terms of ordinary people's lives we've had since World War II. Guess what? It's hard. It's brutally hard. And I think they'll get that. And in all of the garbage you hear about, well, they lost free community college. Well, God damn it, you never had free community college. <laughs> okay? You're not going to lose that. You know, it's like telling me, I, you, well, your wife lost the Hope Diamond. Well, she never had the Hope Diamond. How could she lose it? <laughs> and he said, Paul, you weigh in here, please, that, you know, compromise is the other kind of part of concessions, part of the deal. It's it kind of always been that way. I remember they wrote the book about our 1993 budget deal. The screaming headline was, it was difficult, hard, and confusing, all of which is right. What is it? Paul, what do you think? Yeah, uh, just to, to tease out the historical analogy, <laughs> right? We, we have never seen a presidency try to do something this big with a margin that small. It's astonishing. Yeah. Put it in perspective. FDR had 319 Democrats in the House. Yeah. Democrats. Yeah. A hundred more than Biden has today. He had 60 senators out of only 96. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson had a margin in the House of over 150 seats. Yeah. Obama and Clinton each had a margin of 80, about 82, actually. Yeah. And Obama and Clinton, I thought, were great presidents, but they never tried anything this big. Right. And here's Biden with a margin of three in the House and zero in the Senate. Right. It just doesn't match up in terms of political science and history. Yeah. And it's spectacularly bold. The one thing Biden has that Clinton did not have that Obama did, Nancy Pelosi. Right. I've been doing this 35 years. She's the sixth speaker I've either worked with or against or covered. 
She is by far the most able legislative leader I've ever seen. Maybe the best speaker in history. She will get this thing done. And to be able to do something this transformational with a margin of three is absolutely unprecedented. Clinton and Obama both got their principal legislative package through by one vote. Yes. And they had a margin of 80. 80. Yeah. And Pelosi will get this through for Biden. Yeah. I just think the way this has been covered has been a travesty. <laughs> you know, it's hard. Yeah. And if he's so old, how did he get this far? So far, no one's raised Joe Biden's age on this podcast so far, but we'll, we'll, no, we'll get no, to I'm, I'm, <laughs> and, and my critique is not so much of you, John. I'm, thank, thank you. I'm just lumping you into a class of people. I mean, I know it came in hot on you there, James, but I'm, you're already trashing me. We're, you're already trashing, <laughs> you're, you're trashing you're, me. We're five minutes in here. It's like, seems early to be. started trashing me, so I started trashing you. I know, you. I know, you know, I know. You know walking in. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. That's certainly true. And I've, I got a bottle of makers open here, so I'm going to be as drunk as you soon. And Paul, I see drinking over there, too. He's trying to catch up. Yes. Although this is just coffee. Yeah, sure. It's Irish coffee. <laughs> so we got some historical perspective is good. Totally, right? I mean, Paul, if you're absolutely 100% convinced that this is going to happen, I mean, obviously it's very bold. There are those who would say, and I think have said, who have historical perspective would say, you're trying to do an LBJ-sized thing or an FDR-sized thing without those margins. Right. And in that world, it's going to be, maybe your ambitions are a little bit overweening. Do you sort of say, hey, you know, Joe Biden was right to do this, even though it's it's turning out to be this hard. He could have done something a little easier. I mean, he could have done something a little smaller, might have been right. easier to pass and get some more points on the board. That would be one view of a critique that would acknowledge how hard it is and say maybe he kind of overshot the landing a little bit here. That's a very sensible critique. I heard it yesterday from a former Republican member of Congress, very moderate Republican yeah. who left Congress because he was sick of Trump's bullshit, who, in fact, endorsed Biden. Okay, I don't want to say who because it's off the record right. conversation, I think. We were just chatting in a green room at CNN. Okay. Okay, but this guy said that, and, and that's very sensible, except for this. Republican intransigence is absolute. Had Biden come with a much more moderate package, a third of the size of this, it still would have been very impressive, and it still would have gotten absolutely zero votes. And I think this is something that we have neglected in the coverage and commentary on this package is that there is not a single Republican who is for child care, not a single Republican who's for lower prescription drug costs, not a single Republican who's for lowering the premiums under Obamacare, not a single Republican for universal pre-K. And had Biden come with a third less, you would think that he would have done better, right. but he would not have. Because the Republican intransigence is absolute. Yep. This is the thing. We have two completely different parties. My party is having a debate about the size, scope, and speed of the change we want to bring to the American middle class. And it's mostly about timing and techniques and tactics. Okay, fine. That's a normal thing for a political party to have in a democracy. Their party is having a debate about whether they believe in democracy. And it's a rout. Yeah. It's 95 to 5 in favor of the post-democracy, <laughs> yeah. crypto-fascists, okay? So yeah. we don't have a normal political system anymore. We have half a one. Right. We have half a one where the Democrats are having legitimate debates about policy. Democrats still believe, and Biden is really archetypal about this, that politics is about allocating resources in the most equitable and advantageous way, right? How to do the most good for the most people, how to make a difference in people's lives. Republicans are now only about identity. They don't give a shit about making their voters' lives better. They really don't. They just want to express the rage, yep. frustration, in some cases, bigotry yep. of a few. Obviously, you and I totally agree about all that. But James, I want to ask you this, though, very precise question. So Joe Biden was like on his way, leaving the country, went up to the hill, 
stood in front of all those House Democrats and said, guys, the fate of my presidency, of your majorities, of the country rests on these votes. And House progressives walked out and said, basically, we trust Joe Biden, but we don't trust Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. We don't trust them. And until we get some more assurances, we can't sign on. Now, last night, Pramila Jayapal suggested that maybe she has now read the language and that she's ready to trust Joe Biden, but they weren't ready to do it. It is the case that that's what happened a month ago. The House progressives have been flexing their muscles. Are they right not to like, how do you deal with that in the, within the party? How do you deal with mansion and cinema? You know, they're doing the best they can. All right. The president <laughs> goes out and the progressives say, okay, maybe we'll look at it. We can do that. If you get it done, who gives a shit? If you got it done on Thursday, or you got it done the Monday of the next week. Nobody, not history, not anybody else. And just, just obsession on the process. You know, it's hard. I mean, Joe Manchin represents a different constituency than Seattle. Yeah. I mean, it's just what it is. Totally. It's hard. When they did a Senator Angus King, who I'm having on my podcast with it, he was like livid after the voting rights bill. Did they actually think there were going to be some Republicans that, that he and Senator Manchin and all of them, you know, wrote it and everything else? I mean, no. Biden proposed to make the Bible the national book of the United States and vote against it. Okay. Right? I mean, it's just what it is. And you treat all of you. I hear you. All of you treat like this and say, well, I got to tell you. got They got some crazies. No, they're all crazy. James, I do not do that. I do not do that at all. I'm cognizant of the fact, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that right now, Democrats could pass... It's they have very narrow margins. It's true, but it's all within their own power. They have a bipartisan infrastructure bill that they could pass tomorrow. They could pass it tomorrow in the House. No one even disputes that point, right? And the other one, if they had Democratic unity, they could pass it. And look, I'm not fighting you on the broader point. Right. I'm just asking this question. Here's why the press cares about the timing, James, because the president cares about the timing. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden set the deadlines. They set a deadline a month ago, and they set a deadline yesterday. So we just listen to them. We take our cues from them. Stop. It's their own deadline. Yeah. All right? And if you say, take your own sweet time, well, they're going to take their own sweet time. Okay. So, you know, you go to plan A, plan B doesn't work. Okay, huddle up. Let's do plan B. Well, the press is going to say you missed your deadline. But shit with the press. All right? Who cares? And people come in and say, Nancy, you got to set a deadline. We've got to give people something to work toward. And it, okay. you extend the deadline. You know, when Nancy Reagan came in the White House, she said she wasn't <laughs> going to accept any design of closing. Yeah. So first White House state dinner, she had a design address on and asked the press secretary. And she said, well, it was her little stupid rule. She decided to break it. But it's not written in the Constitution. Yeah. It's not in the, in the World Court at The Hague. It's not in the Geneva <laughs> Conventions that you can't extend the deadline. I'm having some really hardcore PTSD here right now. I'm like freaking out. This is like taking, I'm having acid flashbacks from days, but, and I'm just glad that we're separated by a couple thousand miles because I feel like the heat of James's voice right now coming through the screen. My glasses are fogging up even with James in Washington. Paul, just tell me what you think of this. You are an interesting cat in the sense that, you know, you're very in touch with the progressive wing of the party. You've done a lot of work with them. You're also not like a lefty or a woke like dude. Right. But, you know, you hear it. I know you're like plugged in and I know James is too, but man, the left is just furious with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. 
if you were saying to your left friends who every day in my Twitter feed, every day on cable are like, they're not real Democrats. They should leave the party. Fuck them. They're stopping progress. Just and they they protested Manchin's houseboat. They chased Kirsten Cinema into the bathroom. What would you say to your party members, some of your most loyal, dedicated base voters and some of your most loyal, dedicated base donors? Chipping in small donations every day, helping the Democrats to fight those midterms. What would you say to them about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? Yeah, look at where they're from. Senator Cinema, who I don't know very well at all, I've met her, but I don't know her, is the first Democrat to win in a Senate seat in 30 years in Arizona. That's pretty impressive. Joe Manchin, who I know very well for a very long time, he represents a state, West Virginia, where there are 55 counties. Joe Biden lost all 55. Barack Obama lost all 55. Hillary Clinton lost all 55. Actually, in his first race, Obama won about 11. That's 08. That's the last time a national Democrat won a single county in his state. So it's a big, diverse party reflecting a big, diverse country. And I would tell, particularly like in the Twitterverse, right, the the activists, I've actually been very impressed with a lot of the congressional members of the Progressive Caucus. I I was texting with, actually both, you're right. I'm I'm a middle child of divorced parents, okay? I want everybody to get together. (laughs) So the truth is, the difference between, you know, Joe Manchin and Pramila Jayapal is not that vast, as opposed to the difference between Jayapal and the most allegedly moderate Republican, right? Who's for nothing. And the people who are making this deal are actually, I think, conducting themselves pretty darn well. James is right. The progressives have seen a large part of their dream agenda be cast aside. And I've made this argument to them directly. And I have to say, they agree. Great leaders understand how to consolidate their gains and then move on. You never oppose a bill for what is not in it. You know, LBJ, there's just, I don't know if you saw the Robert Schenken play that Brian Cranston was in all the way. Yeah, sure. God, it was great. Sure, sure. This is wonderful scene in there where LBJ takes the Civil Rights Act and rips the whole voting rights section out of the bill Yeah, on stage, physically. Tears, and voting rights was the most important part of that bill. He couldn't get it through. So what did he do? He took it out. And we passed a very good civil rights bill in 64. Very good, but no voting rights. Guess what? The next year they came back, 1965, they got the Voting Rights Act. This is what you do. Barack Obama came with national health care. Nobody thought he could get Medicare for all, so he compromised down to a public option. He had to eject the public option even. And guess what? It still helped America. By the way, Bernie Sanders voted for that bill without the public option, without Medicare for all. Why? Because I think he's more pragmatic than he gets credit for. And I think Joe Manchin is more progressive than he gets credit for. So this is going to be terrific. It really is. And what I tell activists is it's all well and good to pressure for progress. But you must never insist on perfection. Paul is right. He gets along with more people than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love everybody. No, that's true. And I was running a campaign that said somebody from the activist committee wants to see us. And oh, God, <laughs> here we go. We've got to run this on historic preservation now. <laughs> all right. So, so you guys are both confident that eventually this is all going to work out. Infrastructure going to pass. The social safety net bill is going to pass. It's just a question of when, right? I'm reading you both right. You're yes. confident. You don't, you don't really give a shit when. You just like want to see it passed. They're going to be big and historic, and they're both going to pass. Am I summarizing your point of view correctly? The when matters. Okay. And this is where I disagree with James. The process and the delays and the frustrations, mm. they matter because they right. might cost us the Virginia governor's race. You know, you could say that Joe Biden not having a victory to go to Rome and Glasgow with, not having anything on climate change when he gets to COP26, you could say, okay, 
They wanted it, but they'll survive. In the long arc of history, you know, whatever. He'll have to have talking points instead of deliverables, whatever. Okay, you can say that. All right, but Paul, you just raised a question now. I want to play a recent Terry McAuliffe sound talking about Glenn Youngkin in this Virginia race, and then I'm going to come back and we'll talk about the race itself and the then whether this shit inside the Beltway actually matters over in Virginia. So let's play that Terry McAuliffe talking about Glenn Youngkin right now. Yesterday, Glenn Youngkin released his closing argument of this campaign. In it, he promotes an effort to ban books by Toni Morrison from Virginia schools. This is his closing message. Glenn Youngkin is promoting banning books by one of America's most prominent black authors. Just the fact that he's even discussing this brings shame here to the Commonwealth of Virginia. He is ending his campaign the way he started it, with divisive dog whistles. So there's Terry doing what he's been doing for the last couple months, basically saying Glenn Youngkin is playing racial politics, which I think we would all agree he is on critical race theory and on attacking Toni Morrison. All of it's obviously true. I ask you too. I'll start with you, James. Do you think it's working? And how are you feeling about that Virginia race right now? First of all, Youngkin is a race baiter. Uh, you know what? I already st- sorry stipulated that. Is, God, I hope so. I don't think that Youngkin closing on Toni Morrison, that wouldn't be a, a, a Carvillian move. If he's got to close on something, I'd rather be talking about Toni Morrison and inflation. Yeah. All right? Of all the things that they could talk about, I'll take it, and I'll take Terry's answer. But you ask me, is it working? I, I'll go. I ask you, how, how do you think Terry's doing? I think he's doing great. How are you feeling about the race? If we, any other Democrat were, were in that race, we'd be down by five six right now. I, I, I think he's a good a candidate. They run a really good campaign. Should have signed 47 emails for him. But I, I think he's run a great campaign. It's, it's secret. Don't tell anybody, okay? It's a tough environment out there. Well, that's a point. And Paul, I ask you, I, Paul may be aware of the fact that a poll came out that has Terry down by five. And I'll say we were just there in Virginia on the circus. And I thought it was a coin flip of a race. Mm-hmm. But if you were looking at the momentum in that race, if you looked at the Monmouth poll that over a month saw Terry drop 18 net with independence, you would say the momentum in this race is with Yunkin. And I'm not crediting. I agree with James. I already stipulated before James called him a race baiter. I did. So I was ahead okay, of the curve on that. I was ahead of the curve. But like the momentum in the race is all to Yunkin. Even to every Democrat in the state can see that. And the question is whether Terry can pull it out. Right. And so, Paul, I ask you, why do you think that is? Because, look, here's the reality. And I asked Terry this. He didn't have a good answer for it. But I think I know what the real answer is. But here's what I asked him. I said, you know, Barack Obama won the state in eight. He won the state in 12. Hillary Clinton won the state in 16 when when Donald Trump won everything else in the Confederacy. Joe Biden won the state by 10. There hasn't been a Republican governor since Bob McDonnell. This is like a blue state, right? So why is this race so close, Terry? And his answer was hamana, 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 hamana. So I asked you, Paul, why is the state so close? And how concerned are you about the state of Virginia? I'm terribly concerned. It's close because in 1964, Virginia set its governor's race to be the year after the presidential. Right. Because the Harry Bird racist Democrats didn't want to be tied in with the Lyndon Johnson pro-civil rights Democrats. Okay. Ever since then, Virginia has gone against the party that won the White House uninterrupted except once. 2013, Barack Obama won in 2012 and Terry McAuliffe bucked that historic trend. The only governor in 40 years who has won being of the same party as the elected or reelected president. So history 
Virginians want to pump the brakes. They want to seek some stasis, some equilibrium. That's sort of a generalized thing. Right. There's a particular thing, okay. which is that huge numbers of Virginia Democrats and independents especially are consumers of national news more than state news. Yes. Okay. It's not like Texas where I'm from, Louisiana, where James is from, wherever, Mississippi, sure. where people really, really identify with their state. There's that whole 703, that whole northern zip code. Sure. They're national voters. Yeah. And so the national mood affects them more powerfully right. than it would if this were Texas or Louisiana or California. And then the national news for Democrats has been terrible. We've talked about it, this sausage making. Right. So in fact, what's happened is the cluster gathering among Democrats in Washington has done three things at once. It's very hard to do. It's depressed the Democratic base. It has alienated the suburban swing voters that are the key to Virginia. And it's energized the Republican base. Yes. Okay. Now, Terry's strategy, I think, is the right one, which is to go to those national news consumers and nationalize the race. Yep. To tell them this isn't just about who's going to you know, put a new bridge in Newport News. It's about whether Trump comes back. And this is where Youngkin, I think, has made a mistake. This race baiting, yeah, it'll be effective with his base. But Terry's answer, I think, is so powerful that it's effective with our base, with my base. And I think it can maybe push some of those suburban swing voters back the other way because they don't like the idea of banning books. They don't like the idea of race baiting. So I think Youngkin's actually making a mistake. It's a national issue. And yep. it can negate some of the national depression that we're getting for Democrats. So let me ask you a question, John. Yeah. Do you know who Daniel Gade is? I do not. He was the Republican Senate candidate in 18. He got 45 percent. All right. Yeah, you okay. start at 45. All right? right. There's a third party. Yeah. You're running in, a, in 18, which was a historically good Democratic year. And 2022, which is certainly not a historically good Democratic year. But those are facts. And we like the narrative that this is a deep blue state that only can, can foresee a political disaster. There's a lot of freaking Republicans in Virginia. Trust me. Yeah. I got to put Paul and I both in the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. Yeah. They had seven Trump signs from Highway 11 to my place. But just remember Daniel Gate. And, and don't be afraid that you, have, you don't know who he is. No one else knows who he is. It's Susan hey, uh, Schwecker, the chairman of the party, had to remind me who he was. <laughs> Hey, Paul, you think there's anything I can ask James to say that he won't yell at me over? <laughs> We're in one of those modes right now. Unless I say something nice about LSU, he's going to yell at me. So I'm, I'm not sure what to say. Yeah, just let him go. I'm loving it, man. I'm just like sitting back. And <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love it, too. That's why I have him on. I know what I'm in for when I get him on here. I want to play another little piece of Terry, though. And this will get back to your point, Paul, about the question about the, the bills and what's going on in Washington. But here's Terry McAuliffe kind of speaking a little like unvarnished truth a couple weeks ago about what he thought was why he wasn't doing well. Let's play Terry McAuliffe talking about his troubles and what's to blame. We are facing a lot of headwinds from Washington. As you know, the president is unpopular today, unfortunately, here in Virginia. So we have got to plow through. So there he is, Terry McAuliffe, basically saying, Joe Biden, fucking me over. I mean, the president's unpopular in Virginia, right? You can see it. Now, you know, Terry has been begging for this big bipartisan infrastructure bill to pass. Right. And when I see a candidate begging for something, I assume he knows that it will help his campaign. But I hear people say, well, it wouldn't help McAuliffe. It wouldn't matter in Virginia. You know, it's too late. Paul, you pointed out that Virginia is heavily influenced by national news, though. So, you know, that could have an effect in the end, right? And, you know, obviously Biden hasn't really had like a good news cycle, I would say, really in a couple of months right. since Afghanistan. And, you know, there's this perception Fair or not, the Democrats are in disarray and aren't getting things done. So Terry McAuliffe keeps begging. 
And yet they're not passing that bill. The one that's been ready to sign since August when it passed the Senate with a vast number of votes, including a lot of Republicans. So, you know, it seems fair to say that those national issues could have an unfavorable impact on McAuliffe in Virginia, right? Right. There's no question. So, right. So with that in mind, let's just like lay it on the line here. I'll ask you guys, do you think Terry's going to pull it off? What are your thoughts? Paul, win, lose, draw? It's a jump ball, but I defer to the person who got the finger on the pulse, which is my son, Charlie, who works for the Gerenhardt Yang Research Company. Yeah. He's the Terry's pollster, UVA stat major. He's brilliant like his mama. He says the fattest part of the bell curve is Terry by one. Okay. So the highest probability outcome oh. is a very narrow McAuliffe win. All right. I know James is going to say Terry's going to win. David Shaw yeah. and Sean McElwee yeah. say Terry by four. Okay. All right. They're pretty good data scientists. Yeah. You, if, John, you have two conflicting things here. One of them is going to prove true. And both of them, the truism is that in a race like this, the non-incumbent tends to close better. Yeah. All right. There's another truism is the candidate that has the most relevant closing tends to close better. Yeah. I think that's clearly Terry. But we're fighting a pretty historical headwind here. So I'll say if Terry wins, it's going to be razor tight. Either one of you guys worried about New Jersey? And Phil Murphy, where there's some polling that now has him in the margin of error. Anybody worried about that? I haven't checked in enough, to tell you the truth. Uh-oh. Paul just looked like I kicked him in the balls by even yeah, saying Yeah, that's the first I've heard of that. It's a sharp exhale from Paul there. <laughs> okay, so you guys you guys thought that Phil Murphy was so in the bag, you're not even paying attention. Here's right. my last question before we take a break on these matters. You guys are, are members in good standing of the Democratic Party. In the course of your combined 349 years in the business, you guys have seen your share of Democratic bedwetting, right? Your, your party tends to wet the bed. We know this, right? If Terry loses on Tuesday, like on a scale of kind of trickle to Niagara Falls, how much bedwetting is there going to be in your party on Wednesday? Not enough. I actually think this is a case where too many Democrats will be in denial. They'll say, like what I told you, the historical, it always goes against blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah. What I think too few Democrats realize is if we fail, it's not just like, Bob Dole taking over for Bill Clinton or Mitt Romney taking over for Barack Obama. If we fail, the insurrectionists take over. And if they take over, it could be the end of American democracy. Okay, so actually when Biden went to the Hill and said, look, the House and the Senate majorities and my presidency are at risk, I think he was understating yes. the stakes. So I'm actually, I don't think this is bedwetting. I think that our democracy is in an existential crisis. And it's because the Republican Party, as I said, has become a death cult. And Democrats have to prevail, or I, I'm not kidding. This could be the last act of a great democracy. All right. On that harrowing but clear-eyed note, we will take a quick break and play a couple ads before coming back with the one and only, and I do mean the one and only James Carville. There is, thank God, there's only one of you, Jesus. I mean, if I had realized, James, you were going to be this hungover, I would have drunk more last night, so I could have been like on your wavelength. I don't think I could really keep up with you when it comes to brown <laughs> liquor. So anyway, I'm glad that I abstained, although you were really a piece of work today. You know, even on, on my worst hungover day, I'm not sure I could yell as loud as James did today. And he's like hungover. So thank God you had that much to drink last night. Jesus, fuck. So let's take this break and we'll come back on the other side, uh, take a little trip down memory lane with James Carville and Paul Begala here on Hell and High Water. We have done a lot of exciting things at The Recount since we started this company a couple of years ago, but I have rarely been as excited about anything as I am about a brand new podcast that's joining The Recount Podcast Network tomorrow. This is a podcast co-hosted by two amazing journalists talking about Elsie Granderson and Will Leach. 
And the name of the show is The Long Game with LZ and Leach. I was like, you know, we got to get into sports at the recap. And the way I want to get into sports is by talking about the way that sports intersects with gender and race and class and politics and economics and the business element of it and the pop cultural element of it. Like sports is like fucking everything in America, right? Sports connects to everything in our lives. And when I thought about who would be the best people to host it, I was like, LZ Granderson and Will Leach. LZ is like a guy I've wanted to have on my team for a long time. I'm so psyched he's here. Will has been on other teams I've coached in the past, and Will is always like one of my favorite people to have. So we got two five-tool players exploring all the stuff that makes sports more than sports on The Long Game with LZ and Leach premiering November 3rd and with new episodes dropping every Wednesday for the recap. And we are back on Hell and High Water with James Carville and Paul Begala. And guys, I like going down memory lane. I like playing sound that you might not have heard for a while. So I'm going to play a little sound here. Going back to a time before either one of you was famous. Back to a time when no one even knew who the fuck you were. When you guys won a little race for a man named Harris Wofford, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And were interviewed afterwards by the dearly departed Doug Bailey, the guy who founded the hotline. Wow. Did this little interview and asked you guys... How the hell it is you pull it off? Let's listen to this. Very young James Carville and Paul Begala here. Let's listen to this. In, in politics, and at any time, if you have a candidate that really wants it and has a superior message against a, a reluctant candidate that has no message, you can generally win. And, and Waffa just turned out to be a hell of a candidate. I mean, it just he, he stayed, you know, driven. He stayed on the message. He didn't make any errors. And that's a very, very rare thing in a, in, in a first-time candidate. I've said this before, but managing Wofford's campaign was a little bit like being uh, Ron Turcott, who was Secretariat's jockey. You know, just hang on to the reins and don't fall out of the saddle. So you guys sound young in that scene, right? <laughs> it's like, man, what a thing. James like, sounds like he only sounds like a man in his 70s or 80s at that point, not like he currently sounds like the, the 149-year-old man. Like the voice is clear and crisp, making sense, not just <laughs> screaming. That's because I've won. Yeah. I'm, right now, I'm fighting to try to win Virginia. I'm in a foul mood. That race was kind of along with the Zell Miller race, right? You would the Zell Miller race is for the governorship of Georgia in 1990, the Wofford special election for the Senate in 91. Those were the races that kind of put you guys on the map, right? And then you well, obviously did Clinton. We'll get to that in a second. But you guys just talk a little bit about the history here. You guys met in 83 mm-hmm. and you've been working together for a while. I don't think we've ever really talked about the kind of prehistory up to the moment where you guys broke through together, which is a long road marked by a lot of tough times and failure, right? So just talk about how you guys met, how you guys got together and became partners. I was a gopher. I picked you up at the airport, James, remember? No, that's not true. <laughs> it, Labor Day of 1983, I got a job running Lloyd Doggett's Senate campaign in Texas. And the first meeting, Paul talked, and I just said to myself, I'm not going anywhere unless I take that motherfucker with me. <laughs> and I stayed true to my word, and I, I think it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> I came to that conclusion 10 minutes after I met him. Well, here's my recollection. You know, I was barely graduating from college, the University of Texas at Austin. Lloyd Doggett, now a congressman, was running for Senate, and he wanted to interview James to be campaign manager. And he sent me to the airport to pick him up and get some sandwiches for the meeting. So I go pick up this guy. And back then, the Austin airport was maybe 15 minutes from downtown. <laughs> yeah. In the 15 minutes, I thought this is the smartest guy I'd ever met in my life. And I got the sandwiches and I sat on the floor in the corner of the Doggett Law Firm's boardroom where they interviewed him, where the big shots interview. I literally sat on the floor hoping nobody would notice. James clearly did not even notice I was there. And I thought the smartest guy I'd ever met, but that Doggett was too 
personally uptight. He's very liberal politically, but he's very conventional personally. Yeah. Like he showers in a suit. And I thought, Lloyd's just too conventional to hire someone this creative. I was wrong. Doggett hired him on the spot. Was that 38 years ago, James? And we've been best friends ever since. Oh, yeah, you're good with math. So you guys worked together on a bunch of races. As I said, you guys were not like known quantities. You weren't famous. At that point, you know, political consultants in general weren't all that famous. You guys helped to pioneer that development, whether we like it or not in our culture. But in that period, you know, you finally get up to those races I mentioned before, the Zell Miller race and the Wofford race, two years in a row. And James, I go back and read, even in that Bailey interview, Doug asked some question like, you know, the people are mad and you're like, I don't know that they're mad. I think they're anxious. And you're keying in in a very acute way on some of the anxieties and frustrations of the middle class that became central to the Clinton campaign in 92. And I'm curious if you guys just can remember that moment around the time when Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, he's partway into his presidency, he won the Gulf War. He's got this huge approval rating, but you guys were picking up in those races in Georgia and Pennsylvania, some currents that suggested maybe there was an opening for a Democrat. And before we talk about Clinton, I'm just kind of curious if you have memories about that, because you really read the wind and weather and there were things going on in those states that I think informed a lot of the advice you gave to Clinton in 92 and helped you guys to win. If we were reading the weather in the Wofford campaign, the chief meteorologist was Mike Donlan. Huh. Mike got no credit for that. He is today one of the very closest aides to Joe Biden. And I think one of the main reasons Joe Biden became president. Absolute genius. A very dear friend of James's and mine. Yeah. Mike is as low profile and attention avoiding as James and I are attention seeking. <laughs> but it was Mike. That's the truest Mike. thing you've said today so far. Uh, it's a hundred. Yeah, you know. Donald on both sides. Me. On both sides. Mike Donald, a humble guy, you two attention horse. That's right. Absolutely. It's it's true. But I remember the, the meeting and Mike was our pollster. He did the first poll. We were behind Dick Thornburg by 47 points. Donlin asked a question in that poll, though, about national health care. But first, it was open-ended. What's the most important issue facing Pennsylvania? And it was jobs economy because there was a recession on. Healthcare came in at three, 3% said it was the most important issue. But Donilon understood that if you fused healthcare, not just as a sort of human rights issue, the way the liberals always did, but as an economic issue, that we'd have something. And Wofford was the secretary of labor and industry in Pennsylvania at the time. And he said that, he said, every big strike is really about healthcare. Every big layoff is really about healthcare. If I could fix healthcare, I could fix the jobs crisis in Pennsylvania. So Donilon tests that. And we go in the poll from 47 points behind to winning. And I give Harris and Mike a, a whole lot. We, they, neither of those two got as much credit as James and me. But it was absolutely, for me, transformational to be able to look at data the way Donlin does yeah. and see people and hear what's really going on in their lives. is very rare. Right. You remember that, James? Yeah, I remember it distinctly. If I go back to 1988, well, the first big race we won together was with Casey in 1986. Right. We did the Lautenberg campaign in 1988, and my God, the, the people on that staff were just like stunning. <laughs> but, you know, we won New Jersey by 12, and Bush beat Dukakis by 12. I mean, you're never going to have a swing like that. I mean, that, right. the days yeah. of that happening are yeah. so far gone. And, and John, if I take a minute, yeah. my view of American politics is, why I'm kind of depressed is, the Republicans want a country that existed 50 years ago. And the Democrats are comfortable with the country that's going to exist 10 years from now. And that's a non-negotiable view. I mean, the one critique they have that is actually valid when they say, well, people like me, 
you know, it's not the same country I grew up in. And, and of course it's not. And guess what? It's going to change even more. Yeah. And so they are resisting whatever. They don't care about you know, people say, well, you know, you always think farm. You, you, you want to have expand health care. You want to have broadband in rural areas. They're mortified at what they see the country becoming. Yeah. And Democrats are like, yeah, of course the country's changing. When I was graduating from LSU Law School, it was one black and three women. I didn't know what a BMW car or Sony TV was. <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> no such country today. Now, that's really the core difference that's going through. And everything else we put through is subjugated to those lens. So you can do anything you want. But unless you promise them something that you can't deliver, that, that you, in rural Ohio is going to be just like it was in 1958. Right. All right. Well, if you wasn't a white person or you're a woman or you were, you know, LBGQT person, it wasn't very good for you. <laughs> right. So you guys, you know, obviously got famous and had your biggest success as strategists in 92 and then in 96, but 92 was, you know, really the thing, right? And that's just a stupid thing to say, but it just got to say it, right? So you find this preternaturally gifted politician in Bill Clinton, also preternaturally flawed in certain ways that we now understand. Okay. But it was kind of understood that he had some personal flaws, whatever. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying the guy was complicated. The thing about Bill Clinton contained multitudes, right? And you could see that even in 92. And you guys got put together with him. And you think about it, the thing that James said a second ago about the Lautenberg race. Politics has changed a lot, you know, since 92. I mean, there's so much about the way that the, the parties have sorted themselves out and the disappearance of swing voters and, you know, all of the polarization and the partisanship, which existed then, but is so much more intense now. You know, all of these things that are different. The question I want to ask you guys is, having worked with a once in a lifetime political talent of Bill Clinton, right? But also having, you know, been and, and seizing on some themes that are still perpetually powerful, the theme of change, you know, healthcare, the economy, these are all things that are at the center of our politics and still are. They're durable. Other things have changed. What do you guys think when you think back on that, what you learned from that experience that has held up? That's like, these things became eternal verities, things that I learned about America or about how politics works in America or how it doesn't work in America, where you look back on it and say, yeah, that was not a function of the time and the moment. Mm. This is like a thing that has held true throughout the subsequent now 30 years. I'll go first. You, you know, of course, the divisions are, are, are pretty stark. But at the end of the day, I think most people want an election about them, their lives, than they do about the lives of politicians. And I just remember with Bill Clinton and in Kane, New Hampshire, you know, said they want to make this about me and my problems, and I want to make this about you and your problems. And to the extent, I, I think that holds up well over a period of time. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I think that's right. The most powerful message is still, he's one of us. She's one of us, right? I am you. And there are times, and James has been very, I think, correct about his critique. There are times when Democrats seem to revel in being better than you and being elite. Right. And that's the times the Democrats lose. I think that Clinton had that. Yeah, he went yeah. to Georgetown and he went to Yale and he went to Oxford and he had every elite credential you could have. But right. fundamentally, he was one of us. Yeah. And that's what successful politicians do and have. They give voice, yes, to a policy agenda, but also to an identity. And to put data behind James's point, though, about the change, the very first election, obviously, all the voters were white, right? It was actually John Adams against Thomas Jefferson. 
Washington was named by acclamation by the Electoral College. I don't think voters even voted in Washington's two elections. So the first election, 100% white because of the nature of the, the structure of the racism in our country. Right. 208 years after George Washington, Bill Clinton runs in 1992, and the electorate goes from 100% white to 89. 89. The country that elected Bill Clinton looks more like Utah today than America today. 89% white, nine out of 10. From Clinton to Biden, it's gone from 89 to 69% white. Right. So more diminution in white power over the last 28 years than the previous 208. Right. How white people respond to that diversity is what's driving our politics. Yes. If you look at that and say, like I do, hey, that's great. My doctor is from Iran. My dentist is from Brazil. My neighbor is from Vietnam. My sister-in-law is from Venezuela. This is great. But if you look at it and you say, oh, my God, I don't fit in here. I've lost my place and my power. You come out in a very different place. And I think that's what's driving our politics, how white people respond right. to the diversity of America. Whenever I get to talk to the two of you together, I do it because Paul is so smart and I agree with everything he says. And I just I'm also a masochist. And I like being yelled at by James. That's sort of the, the <laughs> sort of the double play that I get. I like getting yelled at by James and Paul that like he says stuff that I agree with. So I go, OK, that's all right. <laughs> So I want to play this little sound here, an iconic moment from the war room of James on the brink of victory in 1992. This is maybe the most humanizing moment in the history of James Carville. You know, it's the thing that people go, man, that guy's an asshole like 99% of the time. But I saw that thing in the war room. I know he's a good guy. Play this sound, James Carville, 1992. There's a simple doctrine outside of a, a person's love. The most sacred thing that they can give is their labor. And somehow or another along the way, we tend to forget that. And labor is a very precious thing that you have. And any time that you can combine labor with love, you've made a, a merger. And I think we're going to win tomorrow. And I think that the governor is going to fulfill his promise and change America. And people are going to tell you you're lucky. You're not. Ben Hogan said golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the lucky I get. <laughs> the harder you work, the luckier you are. I was 33 years old before I ever went to Washington, New York. I was 42 before I ever won my first campaign. And I'm happy for all of y'all. You've been part, part of something special in my life. Now, don't forget the job done. James, you, are you crying there? Yeah. Come on, tell me, you're, tell me you're crying a little all bit. Right, Come on. I'm crying a little bit. All okay, right. Every time I, every right. time I see it, I mean, it's like. You know, I was so emotional. I, I just, you know, caught, I didn't think about what I was going to say. It just came out. Yeah. It, where did that, that emotional softy go? Where did he come from and where did he go? It was like the one moment he ever made an appearance in life. I got to say, I'm like the new Barbara Walters of podcasting. I like to make my guests cry. So like now that we've had, <laughs> only had James in tears, I, I feel like my job is done here. I could ask you to say something other than now that we know you're in tears, I won't, I won't drag it out of you. I won't wring any more tears out of you, James, because you're a softy at heart. Here's the thing, right? You're like, the governor's going to change America. And there's some more in that speech about how these young kids are going to go help him. And a lot of them did, right? But to go to Paul's point a second ago, what happened, right? Bill Clinton got into office and very quickly, again, for a lot of complicated reasons, we could do a PhD dissertation on this. But by the time you got to this stage in the first nine months where Joe Biden is right now, Bill Clinton was not one of us. He was, you know, being caricatured by the right wing media. And he was seen by a lot of people as not one of us as being in all the things, Paul, as you ticked off the elitist things, right, that were in his background. Those things came to the fore. Again, you can blame a lot of people. I'm not trying to get into the diagnosis of why. The question I want to ask you guys is whether you see any parallel between what's happening to Joe Biden, because Joe Biden, man, is one of us. 
you know, regular Joe, Amtrak Joe, the guy, the only guy probably who could have beaten Donald Trump because he was such a middle class Joe. Right. And now you guys know this, right? Right now, every weekend across America, in red states and blue states, in college football stadiums, in pro football stadiums, at NASCAR events, at concerts, thousands of people are chanting, fuck Joe Biden. I never thought I'd see that happen. People didn't do that to Barack Obama, and they hated Barack Obama. I mean, you know, first black president, every racist in America wanted to chant that, but didn't do it. And I just, I don't think it's Joe Biden's fault, but I think like, it tells you something. And I sort of see some weird parallel. It's obviously a meaner time now than it was in 1993, but it's in a weird way, Clinton and Biden feel to me like there's some parallel in what part of their appeal was and then how they got transformed very quickly in some parts of the country into something else. I'm curious what you think about that. We had the 30th union, Paul, you and I were on a Zoom call. Yeah. And I did this at R.M.L., but I asked you the same question. What was it about the Clinton years that pissed you off more, the peace or the prosperity? Did you like the fact you wasn't getting shot at, or did you like the fact you were making money? Did you like the largest expansion of family leave, the largest expansion of children's health care, the assault weapons ban, the balanced budget, the best economy we've had since World War II? I just don't get this revisionist history that he, he, he was a, a guy with not that great a legacy. James. I'm not engaging in revisionist history. I, I, I'm just saying what happened was, you guys remember what happened? I mean, Clinton took it on the chin, and 1994 was a bad year for Democrats. They lost I, I, control of the Congress I, I, for the first I, I, time in 40 I, I, years. It's just, I, I, that just happened. 1994 right? was a bad year for Democrats. The 90s were a good year for people. Okay? I'm not going to break up my I'm just going to just tell you. No, no, no. I get that. But, but I'm, I'm not trying to litigate I, I, the, the Bill Clinton I, I, legacy with you. Joe Biden's legacy might be great, too. I'm just curious whether you see any parallels between what's happening to Biden right now. I guess I'll say again, I'm stunned that Joe Biden has become the object of not widespread across the country. I know these are anecdotes, yeah. but like, I never seen anything like it. There's How is that happening? There's a lot Isn't... more assholes in America today than they were in the nineties. Okay. I, I don't know what well, to say. I, I mean, there just are people punching Paul, each other in grocery lines and you know, yes, totally. But Bill Clinton experienced mm-hmm. something in the white house that was new. I meant not a hundred percent new, but the notion of the politics of personal destruction, a lot of the partisanship, a lot of that stuff got started. You could blame it on Gingrich. You could blame it on the rise of Fox news, whatever. It kind of took root in the Clinton years. Right. And so I guess my question is whether we're seeing the same phenomenon happen to Biden, the most unlikely person that could happen to whether we're seeing it happen again on steroids. And if there's anything from what you saw is it took root with Clinton politically, whether there's anything to learn from that for Biden and his people. I don't know whether they learn anything, but I think it's this. Clinton came in and he passed his economic plan by one vote, which is the first time the party opposite had ever absented themselves from a major legislation that succeeded. Now it happens routinely, right? But back then it was the first time. But in addition to that, that economic plan, he asked his Democrats to cast very tough votes. He passed gun control. The only time since the RFK Gun Control Act of 1968, the only time that anybody beat the NRA. So he passed gun control. He integrated gays and lesbians into the military. He did raise taxes to help pay down the deficit. He did very tough things, but particularly on that social agenda, advancing gay rights, protecting abortion rights, passing gun control. That really set off people who were already beginning to feel threatened by the changing nature of America. But here's what's really, really different, and it's fundamentally different. And I think it's so different that I haven't completely internalized it and digested it. We didn't have Facebook. We thought it was a problem that Rush Limbaugh was kicking our ass for three hours every day. Okay? That was nothing. And Fox News, by the end of Clinton's presidency, was up and running. 
that was nothing compared to today. What Facebook and other social media platforms do is algorithmic augmentation, right? They're not more assholes today, James. They're not. But they all talk to each other and they think everybody's an asshole. It used to be in our day, in Clinton's day, if you're an asshole, you were still having to deal with people who weren't and who would tell you, hey, knock that shit off. The siloing of our information ecosystem is so powerful that people believe as a matter of article of faith that somehow Biden has a radio implant in his head by which Kamala Harris is scripting him or the Pizzagate thing. People believe crazy things. And when you ask him about it, they say, well, everybody believes that. Everybody knows that because their information loop is now completely closed. And I'm telling you, I blame social media for that. I think that the combination of people feeling vulnerable because of the diversity of America or angry even or racist with the ability to close off their information ecosystem is so toxic that even a guy now Biden hasn't asked him to vote for gun control. Biden hasn't asked him to vote for gay rights. Biden right. isn't being falsely accused of delaying traffic at LAX to get a $400 haircut, which was a falsehood, by the way. Or running drugs through Mina Airport or, uh, right, or, right. or, or, right. or being involved in some kind of a murder syndicate. None of those things so far. And yet he's so having far. the very similar sorts of problems. That's because of algorithmic augmentation through Facebook and other social media. And I don't have the answer to that. I really don't. Although I think that there actually might be some bipartisan deal to be made to curb the power of big tech. James has advice for us on this. I'm with James. There are more assholes, number one. And number two, James's advice is stay the fuck off Facebook, right? Yeah, I, I, Absolutely. You, you, know, if you, you just look at the vaccine thing. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. But yet, I, you know, all kind of people. And, you know, they're willing to die for this crap. I mean, I don't know what do you say to somebody. I'm, I'm very scared for the country. I, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm just mortified because I think they're going to do everything they can to, to try to get us to 1958 again. I really do. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good place for us to take a quick break. I got to do one more ad break, and then we'll come back. And I want to talk about the future, like I said we would, about the Democratic Party as we turn the corner and start looking really in a hard way at these midterms coming up. And uh, I hate to say it, people are already talking about 2024. So James Carville, Paul Begala, I made James cry. Basically the whole the whole point of today has now been like, my day is made. I had a hungover James Carville and I made him weep on the air. It's just in fucking incredible. We'll take a break, we'll come back back. I don't think we'll get to have that again, but I could try on the other side of the ads of the Helen Water. And we are back. Carvel, Begala, LSU, Texas. Wouldn't it be an awesome national championship if these two teams oh, were played? Would that drive the wedge between you guys and finally end this great friendship, this marriage of equals or semi-equals? We played them in 2019, and we were listening to the radio together, and our, our best friend's wedding, Dr. Max's wedding. And, uh, and we seem to survive that. Look, I would like nothing better. I, I hope LSU gets Lincoln Riley as a coach. I don't know if that'll, I hadn't talked. That's a party I would go to, the Carvel Begala College Football Championship party if Texas and LSU were in the game. All right, I'm going to play another good Southerner, another good Southerner, a friend of both of yours, I believe, James Clyburn. Did a little interview in which he said some things that have gotten some attention. So let's play Clyburn right now. We'll talk about it on the other side. And do you think the Democrats will stay united enough to hold on to their majorities in the House and the Senate? I think we can. I'm not sure we will. And that comes from, my dad used to say to me all the time, son, wherever there is a will, there is a way. So I'm not too sure that Democrats 
have yet developed the will to win in 2022. In order for us to win in 2022, we're going to have to get beyond our comfort zones. We're not there yet. I'm hopeful we can get there. Will we ever get there? That remains to be seen. You know, he's the leadership. Yeah, Clyburn, House leadership, right? Have the Democrats developed the will to win? Is it a question of will, first of all? And he's basically saying, hey, you know, this is a comment about unity. He goes on and talks about how the party's too disunited. The progressives don't trust the moderates. The moderates don't trust the progressives. We got to find a way to get outside our comfort zones and work together and be united. And we're not there. That's Clyburn's view. We haven't shown the will to win yet. So I'm curious what you think of that. Is that an accurate assessment of where you think the party is right now? Jim Clyburn's pretty close to a lot of people in the House. He is, and by the way, the author of the most consequential endorsement in American political history. Nobody except Joe and Jill Biden had more to do with Biden winning than Mr. Clyburn. It, absolutely yep. consequential. I've never seen anything like it. So yeah, when he talks, I listen. And of course he's right. And look at the difference. Republicans stood by Trump when he sold out our country to Putin. They stood by Trump when he bragged about grabbing women by the privates. They stood by Trump when he inspired an insurrection that came to try to murder them. And they still stood by him. And Democrats don't want to stand by Joe because he's not getting everything on their fondest wish list. And I have been in close touch. We began the conversation with this, with both leaders of the moderate wing in the House, leaders of the progressive wing, some of these key senators we keep talking about. And there's real animus. He's right. I mean, he hears it every day. There's real animus, much deeper than in the Obama days or the Clinton days. And the party better listen to Mr. Clyburn. He's probably maybe the most consequential figure, except the president and the vice president and the speaker in our party. And he's 100% right. James, do Democrats have the will to win in 2022? You know, to be determined. That certainly right now, I don't think they have the will to win. But, you know, hope, you know, I'll see what happens in Virginia. But I, 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 I think Clyburn is 100% correct. I think he framed it exactly right. And, you know, some people would rather, you know, win an argument than win an election. Well, we win all the arguments. We win an argument on Roe, we win an argument on health care. I'll just take, say something from the heart here. When we started politics, Paul and I, before, he was called on to do hard things. You had to pass the Panama Canal Treaty. All right? That was hard. That, that, that was really hard. <laughs> if you weren't for being against entitlement reform was like being for segregation. All right. We had to put a five cent a gallon gas tax in the Clinton economic plan because no one would take us seriously if we didn't inflict some pain out there. All right. It was a given that the, the, the commentary it covered entitlement reform is an absolute. Of course, now we're asking Democrats to do there's nothing in this thing that's not over 70 percent, including taxing people who make over a half million dollars a year. We can't even come together to do the easy shit. All of this stuff is enormously popular. All right? And if some people are going to go to bed as a progressive or, or whatever. I, I call myself a liberal. But they have to wake up one morning and say, you know what? We're Americans. And we're the only people standing between this country and the horde. And we're all going to have to do something. Because right now, it's very dangerous situation and and the horde could take back over and with consequences that I, I don't want to think about.
I heard you guys on a different show, you know, and I heard you saying these words that I felt like they were coming out of my mouth where it was like, yeah, you know, if Bob Dole won, who cares if, you know, if Mitt Romney, people freaked out. Oh, my God, America will end if Mitt Romney becomes president. It's like, no, no, really, it won't. It'll be fine. Even George W. Bush, you know, America didn't end. It was all right. It was okay. It was all right. We all survived. And now we're looking at this other thing where tens of millions of Republican voters think that Joe Biden was illegitimately elected and there's no evidence for the case. And the former president of the United States is out there still running on this giant lie and changing laws to make it possible for him to more successfully try to stage a coup in 2024 if he needs one. So yeah, the stakes are huge, right? The stakes are enormous. And I heard you say at this point, and this comes back to one of some of our conversations at the top of the show where you guys were a little bit like, yeah, everything's fine. And then I hear you, you said in this one interview, you said, if the stakes are existential and failure is not an option, why is my party arguing about like what the timing of the infrastructure bill should be? I believe you called it appalling that they were having that argument. And so I get you guys want to be rah-rah about the infrastructure and the reconciliation bill, but it seems like you're pointing to some maladies in the party right now. We can put aside the debate about the legislation, but it does seem like you're concerned that the party's playing small ball right now when they should be playing big ball. In terms of politics, the policy is very big. But yeah, I mean, if they pass the president's Build Back Better plan, huge investments in, in climate, yes. huge investments in people. If they pass the infrastructure plan, you add that to the $1.9 trillion they already passed in the Recovery Act, yep. people have already forgotten about. I, you have a total package of almost $5 trillion. Yep. And yep. yet... I can't tell you with confidence that even if they do all that, they will maintain their majority and keep the insurrectionists right. from taking over the House. Even with right. everything, they do everything right, and it's still more likely than not that the insurrectionists take over. And I don't know why they're not acting like that. I don't know. This is not even a slow-moving train. This is not even like a friend of yours who's still smoking, okay? This is really immediate. And Mr. Clyburn is sounding the alarm. I think James and I are trying to. But yeah. it is interesting. And it maybe is like that. Maybe like the person who wants to take a break from the cancer ward to go outside and smoke a cigarette. They just can't break old patterns. I don't know. James, I'd like you to, to answer this question as honestly as you can. Okay. I have a hard time sometimes getting partisans to say this. Do we agree that that voting rights is an existential issue in America, like existential in the way Paul's talking about it, that Republicans are trying to keep people that they don't like from voting and they're trying to rig the system so they can mess with the results on the other side, right? That's what they're trying to do. Okay, so that's an existential issue. Why is it that Joe Biden, who said that this Republican push on voting rights is the new Jim Crow, he gave a speech on that. That's the one speech he's given on all year. One, giving a speech on it. I've seen a president who is focused on trying to get something done on some issue where it's front and center. I saw... Bill Clinton tried to pass health care. I saw Barack Obama try to pass health care. I see Joe Biden trying to pass COVID relief and doing some of these other things. I know what it looks like to see a president try hard on something. Like, is Joe Biden not doing enough to try to deal with an existential issue like voting rights? I think he's as concerned as anybody else. And he got to go back to Senator King that they actually thought they had something that people could rally around. I, I think they might get a filibuster carve out on voting rights. I don't know that. But by the way, that's not a very controversial thing that they do. doing. I mean, they have voter ID in there and everything else. You know, if Biden speaks out, I don't know how many people it's going to bring along. I mean, he did give that speech. He did call it that. I agree with it. I don't, I know like Fred Wertheim and all people been working on this FALBA and are extremely passionate about it as, as any sane person would be. And I don't get a sense that people think that Biden is not doing enough on this issue. I don't, I'm just giving you his rational answers. I, I can't. But it, it's awful. 
I mean, look at what they did in Georgia, where they're pointing boards of elections that can overturn a, a popular vote. I have no idea how that's constitutional, but who knows? I don't know. And wait till the Supreme Court gets done with this coming term. Right. <laughs> Let me ask you just to forecast a little here, right? The thing that I hear all the time from Democrats is that they basically think there's no way they're going to hold control of Congress in 2022. The point you made a second ago was they could do all of it. They could pass all this stuff. And that, I think, goes a little bit to a critique James has made loudly in a bunch of places, which is Democrats, you know, talk about reconciliation and human infrastructure, and they don't actually talk about what's in the bills. They talk about the price tag. They talk about these funky names that no one understands, and they don't go out and actually sell the bills, right? And that's part of it. But your point was they could pass it all, and they're still actually on a track to losing, right? Mm-hmm. That's your view. That's the view of almost every Democrat I know that like there's very unlikely Democrats are going to hold the Senate and the House in 2022. Do you agree with that? You say it's very, uh, very unlikely that Democrats will hold the Senate and the House. Let me give you the optimistic scenario. Please. None of which are long shot. They passed the, the bill. Okay. Okay. That's probably going to happen. The COVID numbers continue to get better. The enormous pent-up demand in household savings in the economy explodes, all right? Now, maybe none of the three will happen. Maybe two of the three will happen. But if all three happen and Biden is able to say that, you know, we passed this thing and employers got confidence in America, we're bouncing back, our growth rates are, are stunningly high, the, the employment numbers are really good, then you might be back in the hunt. And, and I can say none of these three things that I said that I thought had to happen for the Democrats to have a chance in 2022, none of them are long shots. Already. Well, I think that what James outlined is more of a hope than a strategy. Yeah. In addition to those things happening, which I hope they will, and some we control, like passing legislation, yeah. Democrats have to have a strategy. And I think the best strategy I heard was right after we passed the Recovery Act, James talking to our old friend Bobby Casey. Senator Casey. Yeah. And the senator said that two things we hate doing, that we're terrible at doing, that we have to do to survive, bragging and blaming. Okay, there's only 35% of Americans who think Joe Biden's done anything to help their lives. And every stinking one of them got a $1,400 check from Joe Biden. Every one of them with a child is getting $250 to $300 a month, every single month because of Joe Biden. And two thirds of the country doesn't know it. We're not bragging and we're not blaming. When is the last time, and I love our president, when's the last time our president stood up? Instead of only focusing on half of the Congress that is Democratic, yeah. why didn't he stand up and say, not one Republican is for childcare, not one Republican is for hearing aids for senior citizens, not one Republican is for pre-K, not one Republican is for lowering prescription drugs. Why don't we have the not one Republican speech? You know, bragging and blaming. We have to do more of that, too, and not just hope the economy gets better and COVID goes away and we pass our legislation. We actually have to campaign like the country is at risk, because I believe it is. James, I ask everybody's going to focus on next year. Um, how do you feel about the prospects of Democrats being able to get rid of Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott? I actually think DeSantis might be, if anything, a, a, a little bit easier. I think, you know, Florida passed raising minimum wage for $15, 67%. They passed giving felons the right to vote for 64%. We have run some pretty shitty campaigns in Florida. I, I, and I think Florida is more approachable. You know, we've we, we got to get a strong candidate and, you know, a lot of things have to happen. I mean, we, it's true. We, we need some good things to happen. But let's see. I'm certainly 
scared about 2022, but I, 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 I still think there's a path. I really do. Paul, we're already commenting on your Texas sweatshirt and you're a proud Texan. I've been down there in the last few weeks for the circus, man. The Republican Party in your state has lost its fucking mind. And yet, no one down there I run into has a lot of confidence that like Better O'Rourke's going to come in and sweep Greg Abbott out of the statehouse. How do you feel about the prospects of that happening? Very tough. Very tough. And it's it's not because Abbott is invulnerable. He's at his all-time low. Yep. Uh, it's not because he's done a good job. Uh, he can't keep the lights on. When the, the freeze hit in February... 700 people died, including a friend of mine's aunt who froze to death because Greg Abbott didn't do his job and couldn't keep the lights on. They lead the country. Well, they're barely second to California in COVID deaths, even though they have 10 million fewer citizens. They lead the country in death by firearms. They're passing bigoted anti-civil rights laws about transgendered kids and about voting rights. So there's a, there is, I think, a, a target-rich environment to run against him. And I like Beto. Uh, I, I worry that the way he ran for president disqualifies him as a chance to win as governor. That is to say, we collapsed in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Biden did. Dropping 50 points. It was the biggest swing in all of America. The most yeah. Democratic region of Texas is now a coin toss. How do you lose 50 points in one cycle? Well, they believe that Democrats are going to ban fracking, open the borders, abolish the police, defund the police, and abolish Customs and Border Patrol. My college roommate was from the Valley. He's still there. He's a lawyer down there. It's the poorest place in America. It's poorer than the poorest place in Appalachia. There's only a couple of ways out, which is work in fracking, work for Customs and Border right. Patrol, work for ICE, join the military, work for the Sheriff's Department. And somehow they have been convinced that we're against all that, even though Biden wasn't for any of that crap. And I think the presidential campaign had a lot to do with it. You mean Beto's presidential campaign, the campaign in general, Democratic, the, the, Democratic, the Democratic nomination Beto. fight had a lot to do with that. Which almost everybody except Biden was chasing the most extreme of the white liberals. And that really alienated Latinos in South Florida and in South Texas. Yeah. And they better yeah. get smart about that and they better start listening. I Actually, University of Texas set up some focus groups for me where I talked to people down there. Okay. Yes. And I, 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 what I picked up was very, very different from what our candidates, uh, non-Biden candidates were saying in the presidential campaign. I, I told Beto, it's an old line. Uh, certainly it's not original with me, but it's a good one. If they asked about you run for president, he said, look, I wanted to run for president in the worst possible way. And I succeeded. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that, like that, that, that yeah. just, just make fun of yourself and, and get out of it. Sure, 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 sure. But Paul is also mentioning something here that I've heard you bang the drum on before, James. I mean, you've said time and time again that Democrats have what you call a woke problem, maybe a wokeness problem. I don't know, like that the woke thing is a problem for the Democratic Party. And, you know, you said it so many times, but I'd like to play one little clip of you from CNN back in September talking about that issue. So let's take a listen to that. Well, uh, we haven't heard, you know, we didn't hear any of that out of California. I don't hear any of that of Virginia. None of this is defund the police, Latinx. And I've, I've had woke people tell me uh, they're tired of being woke. It's just too hard. The things that the woke people want, I want 85% of that. I, I'm, in, I'm in vigorous agreement with most of the things that they want. But I think you got to, if you wanted to get things done, you got to talk the language that people talk, not the language that they're talking faculty lounge in some, Tony expensive college so there it is that's the quote i like right there even woke people are quote tired of being woke 
that is a classic line of Carbillion thought and wordplay. And as you say there, that you're for most of what these people want, these people, the woke people, but they talk about it in a way that's off-putting to a lot of ordinary voters. And so, you know, we're really right in the middle of it now with this big debate and the backlash and the backlash to the backlash and the backlash to the backlash to the backlash over Dave Chappelle and his comments about transgender people in his latest special, which would be a whole other like kettle of fish if we went down that road, we'd be here all day. But I'm curious, just in the political sense, in the strictly in the political realm here, how big a problem, James, you think this is? whether you call it limousine liberalism or wokeness or whatever term you want to use, how big of a problem is that for Democrats as they head into 2022 and 2024? It's a huge problem. And, and no one talks like that. Hey. All right? If I came up in New Orleans and three guys, like, you know, shooting the breeze, hey, fellas, how's everything in a community of color today? <laughs> this is some jive ass talking about, all right? And it's it just become this faculty lounge horseshit about rearranging dictionaries. And, you know, the, the Democrats start with a problem is be a larger coastal party, a more educated party. And these coastal educated people can be somewhat arrogant. Well, we just feed into an existing perception that people have the party. You know, we think we are smarter than you, so we will talk in coded language that you will have to learn. And they don't think anything is wrong with the language they use. And, uh, you know, you got to be, obviously, words change, things evolve over a period of time. I, I understand that. But when your argument is over-changing dictionaries, you know, and not over-changing the way America, you know, for the middle class, you, you, you're losing everything. And it just some of them are just, it's just silly. The number of people, by the way, that come up to me and say, good God, thank God you said something. I, I mean, the number of people like that, at faculty members and shit like that, like, phew, yeah. man, are you yeah. right? I, I have had 1% pushback, yeah. Yeah. literally. Okay, I, I, I've never encountered a single person. Now, maybe people say something, yeah. don't like what you say, and they don't tell you anything. But man, I got to tell you, overwhelmingly, People agree and have been very supportive. Uh, I think, Paul, that's a, your experience, yeah. too. Yeah. I, I, my son, Billy. They're also just afraid of getting yelled at by James. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Your son, Billy. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Begala in Austin, Texas, graduated a couple of years ago from the University of Texas. And it, it was pretty pro-Reagan when I went there. But now it is a very, very progressive campus. Yeah. It's Berkeley on the Colorado. And they go around in a philosophy seminar first day. They say, tell me your name, where you're from, and your preferred pronouns. And they go around and Billy says, yeah, I'm Billy Begala. I'm from Virginia. And my preferred pronoun, what do you mean? They said, well, how do you like to be called? How do you like to be referred to? And he said, well, your majesty. <laughs> and I love that because not that we shouldn't be sensitive to people's pronouns, yeah, but yeah. you know, yeah. if that's as common yeah. an introduction as who you are, what's your name and where you're from, I think that's a little esoteric for a lot of people. You know, I tell you, I will close one story. My wife and I the first started dating. She was a chief of staff at the RNC. Yeah. And I used to go over there, and I used to shoot the shit with Clayton mm -hmm. Yider, who was the chairman of it's from Nebraska. And he was the first Republican RNC chairman to call it the Democratic Party as opposed to the Democrat yeah. Party. And they asked him why. He said, well, a political party has a right to be called what it wants to be called. 
which kind yeah. of made sense. Yeah. And you know, if somebody wants sure. to be called something, sure. then right. I'll try to I'll endeavor to call you that which you you want to be. But I, I'm not going to sit here and obsess yeah. and try try to be scared to talk to you because I'm scared I'm going to address you in the wrong way. I hear, brother. Yeah. In this respect, in this yeah. respect only. I'm about to say a word that you'll never hear come out of my mouth in any other circumstance. James Carville is a sane man with a good <laughs> grasp of balance, and he's got everything in perspective. Again, something I never thought I would say. I'll live here on planet Earth. <laughs> you know I love you, man. Thank you. You guys are a couple of magnificent bastards. I'll say that. And, uh, you know, uh, I could do this all day, but James's hangover is driving him. He needs to take a nap to there get ready go. for the LSU game, which is tomorrow. <laughs> We're off this week, thank God. Oh, you're off this week. Oh, he looks like he's ready to go to the game. He's like already dressed for the game eight days from now. Um, Paul, you guys got a game? Oh, uh, we're playing the godless Baptists of Baylor. You know what I say to that? I say, hook them horse. Here we go. All right, guys. It is, as always, both a pleasure and a hell of a fucking weird experience to be with you guys but a delight an absolute delight james carville paul begala thanks for being here hell and hot water is a podcast from the recount thanks again to james carville and paul begala for being with us if you like this episode please subscribe to hell and high water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe i am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel, Castro Russell, he's our executive producer. <laughs> <laughs>